Uh, welcome. It's great to see you guys today. Uh, so good to have you with us as we come to worship and fix our eyes on Jesus. We're going to be continuing uh, our series in the book of Philippians today. And this is actually the second to last Sunday that we're going to spend in Philippians. So we've got today. Then next Sunday, we have uh, a guest speaker, a friend of ours called Pete Cornford, who's going to be with us. Uh, then it's Easter Sunday. Uh, and then we'll conclude Philippians together the week after that. So if you want to open your Bibles, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 4. And we're drawing towards the close or the conclusion of this letter that Paul wrote to the church at Philippi. And as as we've said already in the series, this was a letter written to a church that were doing well. They're in a good spot. Paul didn't have to write to them any big correctives Uh, or address kind of real deep issues or gross immorality in the church. Instead, this is a letter that was written for their encouragement to keep going, to keep pressing on in the faith, to keep pursuing Jesus, to keep wanting to grow together in the likeness of Christ, to keep sharing their faith, to keep going on the mission of God to those around them. And and to keep doing that in the face of persecution, in the face of opposition, in the the face of even potential imprisonment, perhaps. As Paul himself wrote to them from a place of being under house arrest. And uh, as we come to the conclusion of this letter, we find yet more encouragement from Paul. Yet more strength in the finished work of Jesus. I don't know if you've noticed that as we've gone through, but it's like all of Paul's arguments and all of his encouragements and all of his exhortations to them to to keep going, keep pressing on, have been firmly rooted in what Jesus has already done. He, He just won't let them get away from that. And this today is no different. We, rather than taking the whole of chapter four, um, we're gonna do something slightly different uh, so some of you may be aware, David Main was supposed to be speaking today. So he had diligently prepared uh, from, from chapter 4, verse 2 through to uh, verse 9. Uh, David, unfortunately, is unwell and had to call me last night and say, I'm not well, I've got COVID. <laughs> and so rather than trying to kind of bite through the whole chunk um, as I've read it and reflected and prayed yesterday evening. We're going to zero in on just a few verses this afternoon. We're going to go from verse 5, uh, or we're halfway through verse 5, and to the end of verse 9. And you might think, why halfway through a verse? Well, chapter and verse divisions, I'm sure you know, were not there in the original text. This was a letter. And I'm pretty sure if you wrote a letter to your friends, you don't include loads of numbers so that they can kind of reference where they are in it. And sometimes the verse and chapter divides are in slightly weird places. And, and actually, Philippians chapter 4 is one of those. So actually, Philippians chapter 4 verse 1 starts kind of partway through the preceding thought, which is the rest of which is contained in chapter 3. Uh, and then verse 5, which we're going to pick up halfway through today changes thought halfway through the verse and then the rest of that thought is concluded in verses six through nine so that's why we're going to start halfway through verse five it's like okay just so that you're not like what are you doing what are you only giving a half a verse that's that's where we're up to so we're going to read together we're going to pray and we're going to see what god would say to us through his word this afternoon 
the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, present, uh, sorry, make your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Lord, we thank you for your word. Well, actually, we thank you just for those great promises contained in that. Lord, that you will be with us, that the Lord is near, that you are near, that you are present. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be aware of that this afternoon as we dig into your word. We say, Lord, would you speak to us? Would you give us ears to hear and hearts ready to receive from you? Lord, we want to be those who are submitted to you, surrendered to you, surrendered to your will and your ways for your glory. Amen. Good. Well, Paul, having just encouraged them to rejoice in the Lord, says... The Lord is near, or the Lord is at hand. This declaration that God is at hand that follows from his instructions to stand firm in the faith, to keep walking in obedience to God, all that he's been saying in this letter up to this point, to imitate godly Christian leaders that we talked about last week, to, to pursue unity with other Christians which is contained in the first few verses of verse 4, which we don't have time to get into today. To be quick to forgive and ask for forgiveness and let your gentleness or reasonableness be evident to all people. On the background of that, it's as if Paul's saying, guys, as you do all of these things, (laughs) as you forgive as you've been forgiven, as you walk in obedience to God, as you let your gentleness be known to others, as you seek to imitate Christian leaders, remember, have this in mind. Remember, the Lord is near. And, and, and then it flows into the next. So it, it, this statement of the Lord is near serves as like a, a kind of joining between two things. It's like, as you're doing all of those things, don't forget the Lord is near. And the Lord is near so this. And that's where Paul's going to go next he says because the lord is near don't be anxious about anything the nearness of the lord gives us strength and hope and motivation as we pursue all the things that paul's been writing about in this letter and we've been reading about over these last few weeks but it also provides a great platform for peace now It's not actually clear from the word Paul uses or from the context exactly which type of nearness Paul is talking about. So when you say something is at hand, it could mean in terms of time, like it's going to happen really soon, or it could mean in terms of proximity, like they're they're physically close, proximate. Yet if someone or something is at hand, it could be either of those two things. And actually it's, it's hard to tell 
whether Paul has one or the other in mind, but I hope, actually, that you'll see that I think he's, he's content for us to have that tension because both are true, and both are truths that we need to be reminded of. Both are truths that do us a great deal of good to remember. You see, the Lord is at hand, Paul says, and he can say it confidently because Jesus has promised that he will return soon. The Lord is at hand. As you potentially face persecution, as you seek to live in obedience, as you seek to do all of these things that Paul has talked about in this letter, it's good to be reminded that Jesus is coming soon. He's coming for his people. He's coming to wipe away every tear from every eye. He's coming to make all things new. He's coming to be with his people for all eternity. The Lord is at hand. No one knows when, but he will return in his glory to claim his bride. And the Lord is also at hand because he promises that he'll never leave or forsake his people. Jesus promised that by his spirit, he would be with his people, even to the end of the age. And so the Lord is at hand. He promises to fill us by his spirit, to equip us and enable us to live for him. The Lord is at hand because he's going to return and because by his spirit he's with us now. And those are both magnificent truths that we need to be reminded of and we need to remember and we need to hear. Because the fact that the Lord is near motivates us and encourages us to hold on, to stand firm, remembering that suffering is short and eternity is long. You know, that was Paul's perspective elsewhere in his writing. He, he wrote, these light and momentary troubles are accomplishing for us or achieving for us a weight of eternal glory. See, Paul's perspective was that, the, that eternity with the one who is at hand, who will return to make all things new, the perspective of knowing that, just changes the way we deal with frustrations and challenges and opposition here and now. It allows us to bear up under suffering. See, if, it, if there was no hope of Christ's return, it would be much harder to live under persecution or opposition or frustration or the challenges of this life, wouldn't it? But when we remember, <laughs> when we remind each other when we rejoice in the fact that the Lord is at hand, it changes things, doesn't it? And the fact that the Lord is at hand also strengthens us because we don't have to try and live this life out on our own. You're not going it alone today. If you're a Christian, if you are in Christ, you are not alone. He's with you. He promises that he'll be with you. That he'll dwell with you by his spirit and equip you to live for him. And in the light of this future hope and this present help, 
the fact that the Lord is near, Paul says, don't be anxious about anything. It doesn't say, like, don't be anxious by the power of positive thinking or, or don't be anxious because you're really awesome and you can do it. It doesn't say, like, don't be anxious because, like any other <laughs> reason, Paul's, Paul's reasoning and his platform for the fact that we as Christians are not to be anxious is that the Lord is at hand. Instead of being anxious, which is unnecessary because the Lord is near and also unproductive because it doesn't get you anywhere, he leads us on to what we can do because the Lord is near. We're not to be anxious, but we are to do something else. We're to pray. What's he say? He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. How are we supposed to pray? Paul says, with thanksgiving. I think the reason he says that, at least in part, is because it changes our perspective. When we come with thanksgiving, instead of coming to God with, woe is me, and focusing on our circumstances and our frustrations and grumbling and complaining, oh, why is it all like this? It always goes wrong for me. It's easy to come full of self-pity, actually. It's easy to be those who, who moan about the fact that things aren't all we want them to be, all we hoped they would be. But when we do that, we forget the many things that he has done for us. Actually, we forget who he is to us and the fact that he is at hand. We're supposed to come thankful, thankful for who he is and all that he's done. Thankful for the fact that he invites us to come into relationship with him, to know him, to walk with him, Thankful for the fact that we can approach him and that actually as we do, he hears our prayer. I mean, how amazing is that? Like seriously, <laughs> like if we can come and pray to the eternal king of heaven, the one who created and sustains all things and not feel thankful for the fact that he invites us to come and he promises that he'll hear us when we do, then like, my goodness me, what's going on? Like that fact alone, if it were for nothing else, that fact alone should stir thankfulness in our hearts. Oh Lord, that you invite me to come? That you, that you give ear to my prayers? Amazing. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thankful of all of those things. What does Paul say we should do? Present our requests. Talk to him. Cast your cares on him. He cares for you. He hears you. He loves you. And he will answer. And when you do that, you'll know peace. This is the flow of Paul's argument. It's like, remember, God's near. 
Jesus is near, and because he's near, you don't need to be anxious. Instead of being anxious, pray about everything with a thankful heart for who he is and what he's done. And as you do, what will happen from verse 7, he says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Not that you will just know peace or have peace at an emotional level. That's not the most significant thing here. He says, The peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God that goes beyond understanding. The peace of God that is, doesn't make sense of your circumstances and is beyond your ability to understand will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It will, it will guard your heart. What does that mean? It will protect you against bitterness. It will preserve you, will guard you against resentment towards God and others. It will guard you against being able to live in unforgiveness. It will guard you, actually, against being able to persist in sin. As we come to him in this way, as the peace of God will guard our hearts and minds. This perspective of thankfulness and prayer that leans on the goodness of God, the wisdom of God, the hope of eternity with God, results in peace, even in the most horrid circumstances. That's the promise of Scripture. It's what Paul's getting at here. It was Paul's experience. been the experience of Christians throughout the generations. We were never promised the removal of difficult circumstances. Like people who want to tell you, like, you become a Christian and it's all sunshine and rainbows and lollipops. Like, they just, it's not true. <laughs> that wasn't the experience of Christ's followers. It never has been. We're not promised an easy life. In fact, we're promised that we'll have troubles. <laughs> but that the Lord is near in those troubles. And because he's near, as we come to him in prayer, we can experience his peace. We aren't asked to bury our head in the sand or pretend that anxieties or the pressures of life don't exist. That, that isn't... Paul says. He says, bring them to God. Yeah? With, with thankful hearts, rejoicing in the fact that he's near, bring them to him. You know, in the past five years, Jenny and I, and, and some, of you, some of you will know more than others, many of you will know some of our story, but the last five years, Jenny and I have been through some, some real storms. Like we, we've not been imprisoned <laughs> like Paul was, or beaten, shipwrecked, or tortured, or those things. But we've, we've been through some experiences and challenges that have been hard. We've been through some dark moments in the last five years. But I can honestly say we've also known the peace of God guard our hearts and minds 
through those experiences. And, and like we've had our moments. Like, trust me, we've not always got this right. Like, we've had moments of complete meltdown at times. But they've been brief. Because actually we've reminded ourselves and reminded each other of these truths. That the Lord is at hand. And that whatever we go through, he's with us. He's for us. Because we're in Christ. We've reminded each other of ultimately where our hope rests. It isn't in secure housing. It isn't in finances or a stable work environment. It isn't in a place or a group of people. It's in him. It's in our eternal destination with our Savior and King. Our hope is in eternity spent in the presence of Almighty God where there will be no sorrow, where there will be no mourning, where there will be no loss, where there will be no suffering, no sickness, no death. And as much as we've been possibly able to in those times, we've, we've sought to pray out of that knowledge and remind each other of that. And as we have, we've experienced the peace of God guards our hearts and minds against bitterness, against envy, against those things that would actually rob our joy if we allow them to take root. As we trust in God, as we pursue unity, as we remember that the Lord is near and we allow that to pursue our devotion to him, and fuel our devotion to him. Paul finally gives one more instruction in this passage. In the context and against the background of that, there's, there's something else for us to do. Something else, as well as praying with thanksgiving and remembering that the Lord is near, that, that Paul says will help us in the ups and downs of life. He says this from verse 8, Finally, brothers, Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. If you were to take that exhortation and instruction of Paul's and distill it down into the, the simplest way you could possibly say it. Paul's saying, think holy thoughts. <laughs> think holy thoughts. Think the way God would have you think according to his word, not what the world would tell you. What, what is True, what is honorable, what is pure, what's lovely and commendable, what is excellent. <laughs> this is packed with such things. God's word is rich in such things. If, if you wanted to go, Paul, how could I do that? How could I meditate on? How could I think on? How could I fill my heart and mind with such things? His answer would be, set your eyes on Jesus. And one of the most effective ways 
that you can set your eyes on Jesus. It's, it's by reading his word and allowing it to do you good. Because it's packed with all of those things. Elsewhere in the New Testament, we find the encouragement to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's hitting on the same lines. It's read his word, meditate on it, allow it to do you good. Fuel your thoughts with the truths of Scripture. Your mind will be renewed. Your thoughts, what you think on, what you dwell on, will affect your behavior. Just putting it out there. I'm sure you know it. But seriously... What you dwell on, what you allow to occupy your thoughts, what you spend time reflecting on, will affect your behavior. It is an unavoidable, observable reality of how we function as humans. And one of God's given remedies for our sin is that we spend time reading, praying out of, and dwelling on, and meditating on his word. When we do, it does us good. I guess... I want to just ask, how much of your time do you heed this advice? And I'm speaking to myself as well. What's going in here, through here, and through here? What's speaking to your heart? your eyes and your ears. I'm not advocating a bomb shelter kind of Christianity where you try and hide away from the world and its influences just in case like something somehow infects you. Like I don't think that's how we're called to live actually as Christians. I think we should be wise about where we spend our time, the company we keep and the things that we read and the messages we, we spend time ingesting I'm going to talk about that in a minute. But I I think we're also called to to be in the world, yet not of it. We're called to go, (laughs) full of his spirit, to share good news. We can't do that if we spend all our time hidden away, fearful that something might somehow infect us. But I am saying that we should exercise discernment about what messages we consume, about what we're dwelling on, about what we're meditating on. Is it what Paul said, true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable and worthy of praise or not? We've got to consider this. We've got to consider this. I want to encourage you in the strongest way I possibly can. 
don't dwell on things that are contrary to God's word. And that will mean there's going to be programs that maybe you used to watch and that maybe you do watch right now that you think, hey, do you know what? That's not helpful. Maybe things you used to listen to or read that you just think, ah, it's, it's definitely not pure, lovely, commendable, honorable, praiseworthy. Oh, it's the opposite. Just think about for a moment what you consume in a day. I've got some, some stats. They'll be different for everyone, but just these, these are things worth considering. The average person in the UK, according to recent research, spends 153 minutes per day on social media. That means for some people it's way more than two and a half hours, and for some people it's less. But that's the average. And I suppose I want to ask, when you spend time on those platforms, what messages are you receiving? Does it fit into the criteria that Paul says we should be fixing our minds on? It's estimated that the average person reads tens of thousands of words a day, not necessarily off a page, in fact, increasingly fewer from the printed page, but social media, screens, other ways. Again, it's it's the average person. That's between work, things you have to read for work, novels, news, other literature, social media. I guess I want to ask you to consider. Some things you have to read for work, right? (laughs) Like you just, your manager won't be very impressed if you say, I'm not going to read that report. Because that's, but, but I think like lots of stuff is neutral, so I'm not, but I, I think we need to consider, what are we reading? TV, again, according to recent research, us Brits watch an average of 30 hours a week television. And before you think, I don't watch it anywhere near that, us Brits on average estimate that we only watch 20 hours a week even though it's 30. So whatever your estimate for yourself is, I want to suggest you could probably add some hours on top and you might be closer to reality. What are you watching? When you sat there, what's going in? What are the messages that you're receiving? What's the worldview that you're being fed? I'm I'm not saying don't ever watch it. But just consider what your diet is. Uh, On the other end of the spectrum, some some recent research from uh, an American charity called the Barna Trust. Now, these are stats for the states. It's quite hard to get hold of stats for the UK. Maybe we're more shy of surveys. Uh, (laughs) But I I would guess these are pretty similar, actually. And these are answers amongst churchgoers, not the general population. Amongst churchgoers in the States, 18% said they rarely or never read their Bibles. Near enough, one in five. A quarter 
of respondents indicated that they read the Bible a few times a week. Versus 30 hours a week TV. And two and a half hours a day social media. 15% said they read the Bible once a week. And 22% say about once a month. What are you feeding yourself on? There's no route, actually, to sanctification or growing in holiness without grasping and responding to and dwelling on the truth of the gospel. It's reality. It's a work of his spirit, but we, he invites us to partner with him. The way we avoid becoming just like the world and instead become more like Jesus is by the renewing of our mind. Bringing our thinking in lines with God's words. Drinking deep. Meditating on it. In Psalm 1, we find these words about the righteous person. Now, our righteousness comes solely as a result of the finished work of Jesus Christ at the cross. Okay, we need to remember that. Okay? Your, your right standing before God rests on the finished work of Jesus. Your salvation rests on the finished work of Jesus. I'm not, I'm not advocating or saying, and neither would Paul be, that you can earn or add to your salvation. But I'm talking about enjoying intimacy with God. He invites us into relationship with him, to know him for our good. That's what I'm talking about. To what extent are you enjoying what Christ has won for you at the cross? Are you living in the good of that? Psalm 1 says this. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, or the word of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. See, what you think on is important. It forms and shapes your behavior. In his second letter to the church in Corinth, Paul wrote these words. He said, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. We are supposed to take captive destructive and unholy thinking. 
as Christians. Not just let it run riot in our hearts and minds. But to say, no, I'm not, I'm not going there. I'm not going to pursue that train of thought. Stop. Instead, I want to do as Paul encourages us to in Philippians 4 and think about whatever is pure and lovely. But the truth is this, we won't even know what that is unless we have a benchmark. Will we? If we're taking our own best ideas or standards, we're at sea. We don't have an anchor. We don't know what's unholy thoughts that we should take captive. And equally, we don't know what is just and lovely and right that we should be thinking on unless we have a benchmark. Unless we have the plumb line of God's word, then we do not know what right thinking is. We're we're lost in just a sea of subjective ideas. We need the plumb line. See, the world actually says there are all kinds of things which are good, which God's word would say, no, they are not. In fact, we're told in Scripture that there will be a time and, and, and that actually that time is here when the world will call what's evil good and what's good evil. The world is utterly confused about what is good, about what is lovely, about what is commendable. <laughs> you turn on the news. All manner of things are being commended as good that are not. The world deems many things praiseworthy which God would say are evil. And so it's not up for us to decide for ourselves what is true, what is praiseworthy. We need to align our thinking to God's word. We're not left scrabbling around and guessing. God has been clear. It's God who determines what is right and praiseworthy. He's God. He's creator. He's sovereign. And we submit ourselves to him. We only become more like Jesus when we spend time dwelling on, delighting in, and growing in devotion to Jesus. And one of the ways we can do that is through reading his word and asking him to apply it to our hearts and minds and to help us to live it out. Living it out is vital, okay? This is useless if it's just an academic pursuit. I've met some really, really, really smart people who could tell you a lot about the Bible, who, who aren't Christians. I've met some really clever atheists who really know a lot about what God's Word has to say. But it's, it's, it's just an interesting ancient book as far as they're concerned collection of books it's no use unless we actually submit ourselves to it and live it out we're supposed to put it into practice let it shape our thinking our decisions our priorities and that's where Paul continues in verse 9 what you have learned and received and heard 
and seen in me practice these things. It's like, this is what you've, what you've known of what is right and honorable and praiseworthy and lovely and noble. What you know of God's word and of what it looks like to live in response to the goodness of Jesus. Put it in practice. Live it out. Paul wants us, as we read that, I think he intended for the Philippians as they read that, what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, he he wants them to cast their minds back over the time they spent with him when the church got its start in Philippi. And he wants them to cast their minds back over this letter and the truths contained in it, the reminders of the finished work of Jesus. He wants them to remember the hope that they have in him. He wants them to remember the fact that they're citizens of heaven and that that should inform the way they live, should inform the way we live. He wants us to remember the hope we have and in the light of that hope to respond by walking in humility pursuing God preferring others loving as we've been loved rejoicing in the Lord giving thanks to him praying meditating on his word and letting it nourish us and stir us up to good works and as we do all of that How does he conclude verse 9? The God of peace will be with you. See now, not just the peace of God that will guard our hearts and minds, but the God of peace will be with us. He himself will be with you. The Lord is at hand. He himself will fill you by his spirit and enable you to live for him. See, this is the joy of relationship with him, isn't it? It's not just he's out there somewhere. He's here. He's with you. As we step out in obedience, he meets us in that place, fills us by his spirit, enables us, empowers us. As we trust him and take him at his word, as we try to align our thinking with his word, he fills us by his spirit and enables us to do it. In fact, that's actually, it's only by his spirit that we have any desire to do it in the first place. If you have any inclination to want to live in obedience to God, if you have any inclination, any desire whatsoever to honor him, to know him, it's because his spirit is at work in you. It's because the Lord is near. This is Jesus' promise to his disciples to all who put their trust in him, 
that as we go and make disciples, teaching people to obey all that he has commanded, he will be with us. That's his promise to you. As you go into this week, he will be with you. The Lord is near. I want to pray for you.